Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mad Talks podcast, where we're dedicated to building better men through conversation, connection, and community. This week, we're talking to John Levy. He runs with the Bulls in Pamplona, battles Kiefer Sutherland in Jenga, and crashes million-dollar weddings. How does he do it, and why? The epic model of adventure, a breakthrough four-step process, establish, push boundaries, increase, continue for cultivating more adventure in your life. From picking the right team to choosing the right mission and taking the right risks. This interview is full of crazy stories from his own exploits to show you how it's done. So let's bring on John Levy. Hey, John, welcome to the Mad Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Are you kidding? I'm super excited to be here and I uh, can't wait to jump into this. Awesome. Uh, you know, we always like to ask our guests the same question and we'd love to ask you the same. Uh, if Can you share with us a defining moment for you? Oh, without a doubt. So this one's kind of embarrassing and uh, often people think I'm kidding when I, I share it. Uh, but I grew up incredibly unpopular. I was in eighth grade and I'll never forget this. My teacher walks in one day and says, today we're throwing out the seating chart. And we're going to have each student privately submit two people they don't want to sit down next to and two people they do. And I discovered two things. Uh, one, there was one student nobody wanted to sit with. And the second is that that student was me. And I was totally devastated, right? Because if you're in eighth grade, your entire world are your classmates and academics. And so I was, I just didn't even know what to do do. And so I tried all these different things to fit in, like watching the shows that the cool kids watched and talk to them about it. But the fact of the matter is I was a geek. I liked watching Star Trek, not, you know, Beverly Hills, 90210. Or I liked as computers and science. And back then that wasn't cool. Uh, so I really didn't fit in for most of my childhood. And I can imagine that that very much led to where you are today. And, you know, for those that don't know John, John's a social scientist. Um, and, and I'm assuming social interaction was bred from that sort of lack of, of uh, popularity, uh, without a doubt. Um, sorry, human, human behavior scientist. What, what, what would be the exact term? Oh, that, that's perfect. I study kind of human behavior, the decisions we make, how to affect them. And then I also look at a kind of this quirky, uh, subtopics of uh, the science of adventure, actually like what causes us to live exciting lives and influencers, the people that have an ability to impact our lives. And so, oh yeah, without a doubt, you know, it's, it's almost to the point of being absolutely cliche that the most unpopular kid goes on, who is a geek goes on to study popularity essentially. Awesome. And so, and so, you know, over the past, I think over the past 10 years or so, you've been hosting these things called influencer dinners. And I'm wondering if you could share with us what is an influencer dinner? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I got really, really curious uh, what causes people to live high quality lives. And I was sitting in a seminar and the seminar leader said that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. So I got curious, how do I bring together the most extraordinary people? And I spent about a year studying the concept and developing kind of different techniques. And what I ended up with was a secret dining experience where 12 people are invited. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, 
everybody gets to guess what everybody else does. And then they find out that it's a Nobel laureate sitting across from an Olympian, a uh, the president of a television network sitting across from the uh, editor-in-chief of a major magazine, a famous actor sitting across from a Grammy award-winning musician. And so I've hosted hundreds and hundreds of people at this point, I think close to 900 across 100 dinners. So throughout the entire process, nobody nobody ever gets to know what they do. So do you do you preface it with questions that they can interact with or do you do you give them sort of resources on on how to because that's what most people go to first, right? They sit down next to somebody that they don't know and you know, they shake hands and then they immediately get into so what do you do? That's sort of like the first question. So I'm curious is, you know, do you set that up strategically or do you let it unfold organically? Uh, the, the answer is both. Uh, one is the type of people who tend to be more influential tend to be more socially capable. It's not a guarantee, but there's a generalized relationship. The second is that I test everything out. So most of the time, I'll just let it flow organically. And I kind of like seeing the awkwardness as people get over it and then find ways to connect on on a way rather than just their career and their like pre-written script, right? When somebody asks you what what do you do, Connor? You probably have like a pre-practiced speech that you give. And when you can't talk about that, you end up talking about all the things that are kind of more important, the ones that you talk to your friends about. Because your friends aren't going to ask you what you do. They already know. So what ends up happening is that they end up creating these very bonded, intimate relationships very quickly. Because they're talking about their kids rather than the report they had to file today, or they're talking about the vacation they just went on rather than, you know, the news in the industry. And so I tend to not guide any uh, behavior in terms of topic because let them talk about whatever they want. But I do at other events, try and seed conversation. I also have an event called The Salon where 60 people come and I have three famous speakers speak. So it'll be like Bill Nye, the science guy, followed by a famous architect like Bjarke Ingels. And then we'll have one of the former Roots perform. And what ended up happening is that I said, why not kind of guide it to the realm of possibility and creativity? So I, we send people an email with, here's some suggested questions to ask. What is it that you're most proud of? If you could work on any project right now, what would it be? And just to let people off the hook a little and also have people realize that the conversations within that environment are about creating real relationships. Right. And I can, I can imagine the first time that you did this and the first time you said to yourself, I'm going to have you know, some random people I've never met, met before over to my house for dinner. That must have been frightening. And, you know, it, it's amazing what you've done because it's it fits so perfectly into what your book is now, you know, this whole idea of adventure. And and for those that know don't know John's book, it's called The 2 a.m. Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. Now, asking people to come over to your house, that's an adventure. Telling them not to, you know, telling them not to uh, tell anyone what they do for a living, that's an adventure, but also... Uh, them coming and and you know uh, being a part of the uh, being a part of the the evening is an adventure. What is it about this idea of adventure that that gets you so excited? So I think that there's two aspects. One is the benefit of an adventure. Right? So the way I define the experience is an adventure has to be exciting and remarkable. It has to be worth talking about. Two, it has to possess adversity and or risk. You have to be able to overcome something. 
and that can be a perceived risk, right? Like there's a lot of things that are really safe that seem scary. Asking somebody out, public speaking, skydiving, all those things are really safe, but they force you to cross some kind of social, physical, or emotional boundary. And then you get to grow, which is the third characteristic. The person you are at the end is distinct from the person who started. And so what ends up happening is that the beauty of an adventure is not just the great stories and absurd activities that you participate in, but you end up an expanded, better version of yourself at the end. You get to have a comfort zone that's much larger, and that'll be with you for the rest of your life, far longer than those memories of the experience will last. And so I think what excites me the most about adventure is that you get to be a new person and you get to push yourself and do extraordinary things on one side. And then on the other, you realize that there's an opportunity to live in an excited and wondrous state. You see, uh, there's something called flow state. Have you ever, have you guys ever discussed this on the show? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Uh, so you guys know, uh, research by Mihai Chikmihai about peak human performance. And peak human performance occurs when you're doing something just outside of your skill set. Something that's beyond the familiar, but not so daunting that you're failing constantly. And that's kind of where adventures occur, in the sense that an adventure has to occur outside of your comfort zone. And so... When you think about the most thrilling, exciting, wondrous moments of your life, those that made you grow, it's very possible that you were entered into a flow state. And if you look at the, there's a book called Rise of Superman, I think, or Rise of Superhuman, which examines how flow state uh, leads to learning twice as fast or how all the major records in extreme sports have been shattered in recent years because doing something that requires such intense focus and pushes you outside of your comfort zone causes uh, you to enter flow state and thereby perform significantly better. So why is it called the 2AM principle? Oh, <laughs> so the, the answer requires uh, two things. One is the basic idea is that nothing good happens after 2AM except, <laughs> except the most epic experiences of your life. And the actual discovery totally. that I made was that every adventure follows a four-stage process. And so the four stages are establish, where you put the right elements in place, push boundaries, where you expand your comfort zone, increase, where you maximize the emotional value of the environment you're in, and continue, where you either choose to loop back through the process or you end with style. You end on a really mm -hmm. positive note. And, and that's the epic model of adventure that, that you talk about in the book. Precisely. So... When I say nothing good happens after 2 a.m., except the most epic experiences of your life, I really mean the epic model of adventure. So if you know how to leverage these ideas that are in the epic model, you can create an absolutely extraordinary time wherever you are, no matter what's going on. Awesome. So, so let's, actually, let's actually unpack this, this, this whole idea of the epic model. So, so you, you mentioned established, and, and this is essentially... You know the idea that your your brain operates differently in in unfamiliar environments. So our brains are obsessed with novelty. Um, wonder if you can just kind of unpack that. Absolutely. So, well, in the established phase, you're putting the right elements in place so that an adventure can occur. Uh, if you look at any great adventure movie or book, they they really have that section at the beginning where they get like the ragtag group of misfits together, or they have they set up like the mission for the book. It's really no different 
when you're out with your friends. So if I'm going out on a night on the town, like going out for drinks is like, you know, isn't particularly exciting. You do it probably every weekend. And for those who are more active, you probably do it every night. But let's now take a look at what would make it an extraordinary night. The first thing is selecting the right group of friends. Why? Because the right group of people can make a terrible experience amazing. And the wrong group can make an absolutely incredible event awful. The second characteristic that I'd look at is location, which is what you were pointing to. When you're in a new environment, your brain responds to how novel or different it is. And the more different it is, the bigger the response you get. And kind of two things happen. One is uh, your brain floods with dopamine, uh, which causes you to uh, remember the experience more. It's very pleasurable. Uh, so the smells, the tastes, everything in the environment all become more uh, memorable. The second is that because of the way the whole system works, you are actually rewarded for exploring. It's enticing to understand the environment. In fact, it's enticing to understand anything novel or different. And if you look at it from why, at why, I think the reason is, or the explanations that I've always heard is that if you're alive right now and you understand your environment, then you feel safe. But if there's something being introduced to you that is strange or different, that may risk your survival. So the brain gets really interested in understanding it so that you can actually continue to survive. So over millions of years of evolution, that's been a, a point of, of uh, benefit for our survival. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is one of my like favorite parts of human dynamics and the way that people interact with one another, and you know what we find interesting, and who we connect with, and who we don't connect with, you know, at, at parties or any form of social gathering. Because, uh, you know, I think the the people that I have met who are very influential are the ones who are just innately curious about people around them and new information. And it leads them to ask questions that are oftentimes out of the norm. You know, like in a social environment, I find myself, I, I never go for the what do you do question right up front. I'll talk around that as much as humanly possible because it usually gives me a good idea of who that person actually is like are they willing to talk about things outside of what they do for a living or are they trying to stick to what's safe and normal um which kind of brings us into the next point which is in and around pushing boundaries and um you, you know you you had this just like little saying from the book that says you you have to cross some kind of social physical or emotional boundary you have to push your comfort zone because an adventure isn't an adventure unless you grow from the experience. And so, you know, I think that that can come from so many different ways and, and avenues. But I'm curious as to how you push boundaries within these experiences, because um, it looks like you've done some pretty cool things in, in order to get people out of their comfort zones. I think that that's a really uh, great question. And I and I might have to unpack it with you because I'm like, it's something that might be so ingrained in my behavior at this point. <laughs> so the first thing I'd say is how I personally do it is I look at an environment and I go, if there's something that scares me, that's not likely to hurt me or kill me, then I do it. 
And I'll often be out with friends and we'll like, oh, we'll be, you know, I spent last New Year's in the jungles of Panama and I did this four hour hike. And at the end of the hike, there's this absolutely stunning waterfall with like a 40 foot drop into a pool. And uh, my friend Nadav turns to me and he goes, hey, do you want to do the jump? And I go, absolutely not. Now let's go. And so we did it and it was incredible. But the fact is I didn't want to do it. I wanted to have done it. I wanted to be the person who has done it and isn't stopped by his fear. But at the moment that I see it, I'm like, oh my God, that looks like a terrible idea. <laughs> and so the first thing I do is I, I make sure to say yes to things. And then I make sure that the people I'm around won't let me get away with not doing it. And then it, it, as a general rule, I find opportunities to kind of maximize or push the whatever's going on in the environment, kind of like poking a bear. Uh, I might be at a party and I'll see a group of people and I'll see that, oh, they look like they'd be fun to hang out with. So I go and talk to them. And then I keep adding people to the group to expand it so that we're constantly making it a bigger group. And then I say, okay, guys, let's do something wild. Let's play a game. Let's uh, go to another location, whatever it is. But the key is to keep the interaction going, uh, to keep finding new ways to either challenge one another, or play games or whatever it is uh, that might catalyze people exploring different aspects of their personality or catalyze some kind of interaction that that could be uncomfortable because the not uncomfortable in a bad way but uncomfortable in the sense that you can't get out of your comfort zone unless you're willing to be uncomfortable mm. and you know we we hear a lot from men in our community that struggle with this very thing they they get sort of myopic they they get comfortable in in their ways they they don't want to push those boundaries can you give any advice for someone who like let's just take adventure out of uh, out of this just somebody who needs to just push more boundaries in 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 general is it something that you can just kind of start small with or should you just do something totally crazy and epic that you'd never possibly see yourself ever doing whether it's quitting your job or you know or uh you know grabbing your wife and and jumping on a plane and and heading off to Paris for a week at the very last minute. So I think the answer is if it's not something you're used to, I would go small. And here's why. One is that if you don't have the experience to pull off something completely insane, the failure might be a deterrent from attempting anything in the future. If you bounce back really easy, then go for it. Right. But there's also something called the winner effect. And the winner effect works like this. Let's say I'm, I have some kind of challenge, so whatever it is, and I overcome it. What happens is my body floods with testosterone. Now, this prepares me for my next challenge and gives me a higher chance of success. And so what ha happens is with this higher likelihood of success, I'm now going to keep looping through this this process of win and then more testosterone, win and more testosterone, win and more testosterone. This is phenomenal if I'm trying to build up momentum and confidence. It And this was also used as a technique by boxers to prepare them for big fights. They would do a bunch of really small fights that just to kind of boost them up and get them mentally ready for a really big fight. And so uh, the big risk though is that if you win too many fights, 
or battles, then you start thinking that you're invincible and start making terrible decisions. And uh, that's actually what led me to get crushed in Pamplona during Running of the Bulls was after doing some pretty daring and stupid things with the bulls in the stadium and like running up to them and slapping them and doing all this crazy stuff. I decided to let the bulls jump over me as they entered. And uh, one of them missed its jump, landed on me, and I thought I was paralyzed. I lost all feeling in my body. And I was pretty sure I was just done. What ended up happening was that I somehow was able to stand up and tried to go to get medical attention. Uh, but there was something really, really clearly wrong with my body. And nobody could help me because they were too busy pulling the other guys out of the way who had been really screwed up. And uh, I end up at triage and the pain is now so overwhelming that I lose the ability to speak. And I start going unconscious and they kind of have to shake me awake and examine me. And so you have to be really careful not to go to the extreme. It's unlikely that you will. But if you can just rack up a bunch of small wins, uh, that momentum can really get you going. Uh, but make sure that whatever your challenge you're taking on, you're willing to deal with the consequences. Because uh, frankly, the idea of being paralyzed or dead doesn't really appeal to me anymore. <laughs> Nor that no, ever. But... That's insane. Absolutely. <laughs> no, yeah, I was, I was going to say I used to, I used to push boundaries, uh, you know, with motorcycle racing and, you know, a lot of uh, adrenaline junkie things. And, and it's always interesting. I'm, I'm curious before we move on to increase, cause I, I think that that one's really powerful. I'm curious as to how important it is in terms of setting boundaries in our lives so that we can push boundaries. Because one of the biggest things that I see with a lot of people is that they're not comfortable with pushing boundaries because they don't even know how to set them in the first place. And so I'm curious as to like what your take is on that. Well, I think that, that we want to talk about two different types of boundaries. One is the boundaries of our comfort zone, right? And those become really obvious when you're going to attempt anything because you'll start getting nervous. If something's really familiar, it doesn't draw a physical response from you in the same way. And so you'll know the boundaries of your comfort zone. The boundaries you might not be as aware of are the boundaries that you're setting for yourself that you feel comfortable with. Meaning there's certain social behaviors that you might approve of and certain ones that you don't. Might be the way that you were raised, might be those set by society that you feel obligated to follow, whatever it is. And those boundaries you have to be more conscious of. The other, your personal boundaries that have to do with your comfort zone, you're just going to get a physical response from. Like if I say, Connor, I want to go base jumping today. What would you say? Ooh, I would say probably, yeah. I'd probably say, okay, let's let's do it. Depends on how high up I have to go. <laughs> I, I would say absolutely not. Same. Um, Connor, just so you know, base jumping is an incredible sport that requires tons and tons of experience parachuting. You're literally going off of like a building and you're jumping off. Uh, so I wouldn't recommend it. Um, <laughs> so, so don't go for that first. Is yeah. What, you're saying. Uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is that if you don't get a physical response that says that this might kill me, uh, then 
then you might want to go speak to a doctor because unless you're <laughs> an experienced base jumper or at least a parachuter has years of experience or is clocked in a, a certain amount of jumps, uh, it's really not a good idea. It's not like a an amateur experience, right? You can go tandem jumping and you'll be completely fine. There's virtually no rate of injury uh, in parachuting. Oh, it's more like, let's go shark diving. Okay. It's, yeah. it's, you, you should be getting a physical response that says, absolutely not. This will kill me because that has actual peril versus perceived risk, right? So what you're looking for is what are those things that have a perceived risk that's attainable, but if I fail at it, it won't crush me. Mm. And I'm not talking crush me like the bull did. I'm talking, there's, you know, like if you go out and do something that's really difficult and it's socially embarrassing, if you fail, it might really deter you from participating in anything in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a really, really good point. Um, I, I'm curious as to whether or not you, you know, there's like lots of talks about bucket lists and people have, you know, really long lists of things that they want to accomplish before the end of their lives. And, um, you know, is, is your adventure, like, do you have like an adventure bucket list or is, are these things that you do and get up to, are they more spontaneous or is it a mix of both? I think it's a mix of both. So there's definitely things that I'm, I go, okay, this is my goal. And every year I set a travel goal that is designed to get me out of my comfort zone. I don't know how I'm going to achieve it. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it, but I know I'm going to make it happen because I announce it to all of my friends and then... I go for it. So in 2013, I committed myself to going one trip a month to the biggest event in the world, wherever it was. So Cannes Film Festival in the south of France and Burning Man and Running of the Bulls and uh, Toronto International Film Festival and so on. And I went to all these events and every month I had one. Uh, in 2014, I went a month and a half and I switched cities every three days. It was brutal, but amazing. And so you can imagine between Stockholm and Tel Aviv and uh, Prague and Budapest and Vienna and so like just tons and tons of places. 2016 was really audacious. I committed to going to all seven continents in one year. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that is, pretty, that is pretty crazy. I love that. In fact, I was in Antarctica and I was I swam in zero degree water longer than anyone else on my trip by like a multiple. And I remember walking out of the water. I was, I was a tomato. I was red because my skin had reacted so much from the cold. I, I didn't feel my arms or legs. And I was so disoriented from the experience that I just kept walking around the beach in a bathing suit <laughs> in zero degrees. That's what, that's what penguins are doing all the time. Yeah, they have layers and layers and layers of fat. And not that like I'm some ab model or anything, but like yeah. I'm not that fat. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it was uh, at a certain point, people were like, maybe you should get dressed. Like that'd be a good idea. And so I, I'm like, you know what? You're right. Uh, and I start putting on my clothes, but my fingers don't work. So I have to like use my knuckles and I refuse to take help because I'm like, if I'm so screwed up that I can't dress myself, I should be like medical evacuated out of here. <laughs> 
So you're so you're in Antarctica. You, you know, that's adventure enough. But you decide to jump into zero degree water. To me, this sounds like you're increasing the adventure, which I you know, which is the the third uh, uh, sort of part of the of the epic model. I was wondering if you can explain to us what increase means. Yeah. So you're you've gone somewhere, right? You're in, hopefully in a new location. You're with your awesome group of friends. Um, hopefully you've even set up a mission or a goal for the night or week or whatever length of time you have. And now as you're in this environment, you want to get the most enjoyment out of it before you go anywhere else. So how do you do it? Well, there are different techniques you can use. Uh, for starters, you could use challenges to create some healthy competition between your friends. You can use uh, intrigue to pull people in, create curiosity so that they uh, engage with you. You can entertain them through stories or humor or whatever it is that your skill sets are. Maybe it, you're at a campfire. It doesn't have to be crazy intense. Increasing the experience might be somebody pulls out a guitar and you all sing along and you have a great time. And then there's always surprises. And surprises kind of have two forms, those those that you, you plan. So, oh, I surprised you by having you know, somebody show up and participate with all of us. Or maybe I surprise you guys with an activity that we're going to do. By the way, guys, uh, we're not just hanging out here, but we're going to be guided on a tour in the area, whatever it is. So, Or there's surprises of something all of a sudden shows up and you have to jump on the opportunity. So uh, a few years ago, my brother uh, sends me a text. This is like eight days before Thanksgiving, the Wednesday, a week before Thanksgiving. And he goes, Hey John, I'm in town. I can have one drink and then I have to, to go, uh, to go to bed. I have a, I have to be up at three for a 6am flight. I see where this is going. (laughs) I I texted him back. I'm like, first of all, it's never just one drink. Uh, so prepare for one of the craziest nights of your life. He's like, no, no, I have to be up at three. This isn't happening. Uh, we're, we're not doing any craziness. So of course I meet him and I was like, I gave you fair warning. One drink turned into three drinks. Three drinks turned into bar hopping. Bar hopping turned into, oh, uh, you know what? We should stand in line for this uh, nightclub. Go stand in line. I'm going to stand on the side because two guys should not walk in together. And so as I'm standing online, I see this guy walking into a bar with somebody, or rather a diner. And uh, I, I'm like, I think I know who that is. And so I grab my brother from line. I go inside and they're like, sorry, we're closed. And I lean in. I go, Kiefer, is that you? Man, I haven't seen you since that time. And the time was another story in the book. And he goes, he waves me in. And it's Kiefer Sutherland, his friend, me and my brother. And, uh, and the bartenders are like, okay, what will you have? And I go, I'll have what he's having. And they pour me a whiskey and Coke. And Kiefer proceeds to teach me how to drink. Oh. And it was like this wild, surrealistic experience where he's like, okay, first you need to take a sip of whiskey. Then you take a sip of Coke. You'll notice that the Coke will then like soothe the burn of whiskey. Uh, I learned how to do this from one of my dad's friends. And I'm like, I cannot believe this is happening. So... Uh, we're all hanging out and the bartenders then go, well, listen, if you're going to be here after hours, you have to participate in our traditions. And they start pulling something from behind the bar. And all I can imagine is, oh my God, this is going to be like a grossly disgusting amount of drugs. Like they, I, I had this image, you know, I'm in a, in a, in meatpacking district in Manhattan. I'm hanging out with a celebrity in a closed venue after hours, having drinks. Like, what could this tradition possibly be? And the guy starts pulling this thing out. 
and it was way worse. It was Jenga. <laughs> and we were a drunk, uncoordinated group of idiots about to play the one of the most difficult games of hand-eye coordination society has ever created. And so we spent the next three hours playing Jenga. I, like we we end up like just bonding and like passing around our things and Kiefer pulls out his glasses so he can see better. And, you know, it's just absolute craziness. And, uh, and by 3 a.m., my brother's like, listen, I got to get to a flight. So we exchange contact info. We invite each other to one another's Thanksgiving dinners. And what ends up happening is uh, my brother manages to get to his flight. I go home and I pass out. And uh, at I wake up the next morning and I'm wearing no shirt, but I'm, I have my jeans on and shoes. <laughs> like I obviously didn't make it that far to get into bed and uh, I looked out on the ground and I realized there's something sparkling and it's uh, Kiefer's glasses I'd accidentally stolen them and so uh, my brother comes back the next week for uh, Thanksgiving Kiefer celebrated his on Friday rather than Thursday so we're like why the hell not return his glasses we know where Thanksgiving is he invited us and so me, my brother, his wife, the girl that I was dating at the time, and a friend of ours show up at this place kind of unannounced. And uh, Kiefer comes over to us and is like, can I help you? Uh, clearly not remembering us. And I pull out the glasses and I go, hey, I'm so sorry. I, In the craziness of hanging out and playing Django together till three o'clock in the morning, I unintentionally took your glasses and he looks at me very sternly and looks at me up and down you know i mean like it's like a one of those stares that you'd see when he was on 24 as he was evaluating a potential terrorist you know, he was like looking me deep in the eyes being like what is going on here and i'm like oh my god am i like about like is this going to be an issue what's going on here and he finally breaks the silence he goes fortunately i can afford to replace those <laughs> and I wasn't sure, like, was he cracking a joke? Was he trying to uh, tell me to leave? And then, like, a huge smile erupts on his face, and he goes, come on in, have some food, relax. And uh, so he grabs food, we grab some drinks, and his it's a family Thanksgiving, so his daughter goes, oh, we should play something, and grabs a game. And, of course, we spend the next, like, two hours playing Django with his entire family drinking whiskey. <laughs> And, you know, it's one of these things like <laughs> I, I was totally caught off guard when he was walking down the street and I could have just let it go. And he was totally caught off guard and could have made it a really sour experience by, you know, like saying, get out of here. But he was such a gentleman and so kind and generous that it, I think it just elevated the experience for everyone. And that's kind of one of the important things is we're going to be faced with unexpected circumstances. Some of them are great. Some of them are terrible, but it's how we react in the face of them that'll define our experience of life. Mm, I love that. I love that. And you kind of tied that story into continue, which is the last piece, right? Which is, you know, go, go to a new place with new people, cross the boundary, maximize potential, you know, all, all those pieces. It's It's really interesting how that was kind of kind of pulled pulled into that story are, are, is there anything else about the last piece continue about the epic adventure that you would add into that so the key to continue is uh you look at a series of characteristics and you decide if you loop back through the process and go somewhere else uh the other is that 
if you're not going to continue, you have to end with style. And the reason is that we always remember uh, the last moments disproportionately. And so if you end on a negative note, which a lot of people do because they don't know when to call it, then you'll remember things less fondly, especially if it's at night, you'll end up staying out way too late and then regretting the experience the next day, making it less likely that you'll participate in anything in the future and also uh, making it making the memory of the experience less enjoyable. The key is to always end on a positive note. Awesome. Awesome. John, we've, we've nice. absolutely loved, uh, we've absolutely loved hearing your experiences, John. You know, I feel like we've been on our own little epic adventure here. Uh, before we start to wrap up, we, we'd love to ask you some sort of rapid fire questions. And I'm wondering if you'd be ready for that. Sure. Go for it. Awesome. Connor, why don't you kick us off? Sure. I was going to say before we even start that, did your brother make it to his flight? Oh, yeah. <laughs> My brother made it to his flight. And the big joke is he passed out before he uh, uh, before they took off and woke up when they landed. And at one point, he he was like slightly conscious and he, he uh, heard the flight attendant say, you know, usually they wake up at least once. <laughs> <laughs> but like it was a New York to SF flight and I guess he was just like between the work that he had been doing and all the travel and like going out till 3am and you know he wasn't on the plane till 6 it, it just was wrecked him and so I guess we've all been there oh, um, absolutely. awesome awesome okay well let's let's dive into the rapid fire and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll get you going here so um, first question you all set yeah all right. What What is your favorite part about being a man? Um, I think that there's a kind of a privilege to being a community leader, uh, especially a leader of other men. So once you've done it or done a lot of things, the pleasure is in sharing it. And there's something, we have something called mirror neurons, which uh, allow us to understand other people's scenarios or situations. It's why when somebody describes that they got an injury, we cringe. So similarly, I may have been to, gone on a thousand adventures. Now the pleasure is in sharing that with people and kind of getting to lead and guide them and help them in their development. And I think that's a real privilege. Very cool. Uh, John, what's the biggest challenge about being a man? Oh, interesting. Uh, so I would say that it's sometimes difficult to imagine what it's like for uh, the opposite gender. And as a byproduct, it, context is gets uh, to be difficult. And we're hearing about lots of issues in social equality and gender equality. And so I, I think that there's a, a, a real challenge for understanding uh, the other point of view. Wonderful. That's a great, uh, great answer. Who is, in your opinion, the most influential person of all time? Um, wow. Uh, Socrates' father, maybe? <laughs> Mm. <laughs> he's considered the greatest thinker of all time and he had to come from somewhere. So <laughs> uh, if you're talking about like single individual who had influence on the influencers, it was probably Socrates' dad. Awesome. Uh, John, what's the most underrated trait for modern day success? Taking the high road. It's mm. great. I think that there's very, very little benefit to having an immediate reaction to things that upset us or when people attack or hurt or are negative, there's just like the long-term and short-term benefits are, are pretty clear to me that 
there's no reason to gossip. There's no reason to insult people. There's no reason to be hurtful. We, our ego might want us to lash out, but it's a temporary response and we may not like ourselves. And so, uh, not that I'm not guilty of doing those things at times, but it's, as far as I'm concerned, the high road's the only road. Mm. And I, I attempt at least to live by that. Although we're all human and fail at times. That's great. And then, you know, with all these experiences that you've had, what is the one thing that you would recommend everyone should experience? I can't wait to hear this answer. (laughs) I think at some point, just about everybody should travel alone. It doesn't have to be a long trip. But when you travel alone, you have no excuses. There's no, oh, my travel companion was too tired to do something, or they were strange or weird, or uh, they made people uncomfortable. It's 100% you. And either you're going to make your experience extraordinary or you're not. And it puts up a mirror in front of you and you have to deal with that. And so I recommend that everybody at some point take a trip by themselves and learn to make friends and learn to entertain yourself and so on. It's just a an important life skill. Cool. So imagine you're stuck on a desert island, which I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you probably have had happen to you. Um, <laughs> what, book, what book would you bring with you? Wow, I'm stuck on a desert island. I probably need like one of those survival books. <laughs> I mean, like I don't know how to find water. Totally. I, I have some desert training from the uh, military. <laughs> but like, I, like fact is, if you were to drop me off on a deserted island, I... I'd like to think I'd fare well, but I don't know if I would. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and then finally, the very last question is, uh, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? I would say that I want people to just live adventurous lives. I'm not sure it really matters that I'm associated with that. That there were countless people who who were probably helped progress the Enlightenment and the Renaissance that none of us know. And there's probably going to be greater adventures that inspire us that come in the next years or generations. And if I played a part in that, that's a privilege. Uh, But I'm going to be dead. I don't know if I care. Like (laughs) at best, that'll be some like anecdote that my uh, extended family says like, Oh, you know, my uncle was like, you know, John Levy, who cares? <laughs> Come up with something better to talk about, like your own adventures. Right, right. Awesome, guys. Well, you know, I can't help but think, but if you need more adventure in your life, pick up John's book. It's called The 2AM Principle, Discover the Science of Adventures. It's available now. I'm assuming everywhere where books are sold, uh, pick it up and and all and, three places. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> pick it up and uh, and and have more adventure in your life. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. We we really really appreciate it, guys out there in Man Talks world. Um, if you want to listen to more podcasts, if you want to read more blogs, if you want to check out more about what's going on in the Man Talks community, you can go to mantalks.com. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, updated information there at all times. And please subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you download your podcast and never miss an episode. And of course, leave us a ratings on iTunes and Stitcher to help man it forward and get the Man Talks podcast into as many ears as possible. Thank you so much for listening to the Man Talks podcast. Catch us next week for another interview as we build better men through conversation, connection, and community together. <laughs> <laughs>